0: Matthew chapter 22. Now, we've been counting down to uh, the Passover, to the crucifixion. And today is what is commonly referred to in the church as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday signifies the day, the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem the week preceding his crucifixion. And so we've been taking the weeks leading up, actually the weeks of the Lenten season, season, we've been taking a Sunday each week to talk about some of the things we could spend really years talking about teaching on just this week preceding the crucifixion of Jesus. So we've just taken selective things and we've identified them. We're in Matthew chapter 22. And in reality, we're a little bit behind our count if each week was representing a day because we're now still about three days out. So we're going to see this um, uh, if we continued on and you read on through Matthew 24. You're going to see that after Jesus makes um, his famous... Uh, teaching about the temple in Matthew 24. You get to Matthew 25 where he t- talks about the sheep and the goat. And you get to Matthew 26. And Matthew 26 verse 2 declares, you know after two days it is the Passover. So this parable in Matthew 22 and all of these other teachings recorded in Matthew 23, 24, 25, these are, these are accounts of Jesus teaching in the temple in the days leading up to his crucifixion. Now, we're looking specifically at the parable of the wedding feast. And we began this last Sunday, but did not have time to finish it. And so we're going to finish the parable of the wedding feast today. And we got down to, uh, I think, probably around verse 10, Matthew chapter 22, verse 10, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read the 14 verses that, uh, of Matthew 22, the first 14 verses in which uh, is recorded for us this parable so that we get the whole thing in context. So Matthew 22 Beginning in verse 1, then Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatty cattle are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding." So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see his guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So we went through this verse by verse. We got down to actually verse 11, and I don't really have time to recount. You can go online and listen to last week's message. So let's pick it up here in verse 11 verse 11 reads but when the king came in to see the guest he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment the lesson here is really very simple unless we are clothed with the garments of another garments that only the king can provide we have no place at his table We must be clothed with the garments of another. We have no garment of our own that is acceptable. Remember, this is a parable of the kingdom. And this is not the first time that we've seen this principle that we must be clothed in the garments of another in order to become acceptable to the Father. This was the point of the record in Genesis when... Jacob is clothed in Esau's clothing his mother his mother clothes him in the clothing of her son Esau so that Jacob the brother the younger brother would receive the birthright that's this is that's not a moralistic lesson about deception that is a lesson That is put in the scripture to show us that unless we are clothed with the garments of another. Unless we come with the fragrance of another. We will not be acceptable to the father. And in this parable Jesus is speaking to the nation of Israel. Remember this is the week preceding the Passover. Passover. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was one of the three feasts in which every male was commanded to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem. And so by this time, by the time Jesus is in the temple teaching this parable, there are literally hundreds of thousands of additional People that have come into Jerusalem preparing themselves for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus is giving them this parable of the kingdom. And it is a parable that has to do directly with the nation of Israel. And what Jesus is teaching here when it shows us this picture where they went out and he called the invited guests, but the invited guests wouldn't come. That was Israel, God's chosen people. And so God says, go out and whoever you find, bring them to my feast. And it says, they went out and they brought whoever they found, both good and bad. This is a picture that salvation is not just for ethnic Jews, but salvation is for the world. Salvation is for Jew and Gentile. Salvation is for all. Without condition, both good and bad, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. This is a parable of the kingdom. And so the servants go out and they bring in all of these guests. And every guest that comes in is given a wedding garment. It was not an unheard of practice for great kings to provide special festival garments for special occasions to their invited guests. The marriage of a king's son was not a spontaneous event. This would have been an event that was methodically planned for a very long time. Prepared for. Ahead of time. And in the case of God's son. The Bible shows us. That God planned the wedding. The marriage of his son. Before the foundation of the world. Was formed. The picture here. Is that these are special garments. Specifically prepared. For this once in a lifetime occasion. To be clothed. In such a tremendous. And these garments. It was considered a tremendous privilege of incredible grace that was bestowed upon all who were given these gifts. So these, this represented a gift that was given to these that came to the wedding. Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 7 and 8. Zephaniah the prophet writes this. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. And it shall be in, that, in the day of the Lord's sacrifice. That I will punish the princes and the king's children. And all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. So on this occasion you couldn't just come dressed. Anyway, we say at Christ Fellowship, come as you are. Blue jeans, shorts, flip-flops, stilettos, it doesn't matter. Come as you are. But on this occasion, in this parable, we see this picture of this wedding feast. And it was not come as you are. Well, it actually was come as you are. But when you get there as you are, you're going to be given this gift of a garment And you put this garment on. Zephaniah writes about those that come. Those guests who come clothed with foreign apparel. In other words, uh, apparel that would represent worship of foreign gods. Isaiah 61.10 Isaiah writes, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. These are not accidental scriptures. This is not just a coincidence that the prophets of old were inspired to write these words. It's not an accident that Jesus gives this parable just days before his crucifixion. By the way, Isaiah 61 is also... The verse that Jesus quotes, recorded in Luke chapter 4 verse 17, right after Jesus finishes his 40-day temptation in the wilderness and Jesus returns in power and he goes into the synagogue and he stands up and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are Bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stopped right there. If you go to Luke chapter 4, you'll see Jesus stops reading right there. But the very next verse is, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus is giving this. Parable of a wedding feast, and he's talking about garments, and he knows very well what Isaiah 61 10 says that he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, that we are to be adorned as a bride adorns herself. So Isaiah uses language of a wedding. Jesus gives the parable of a wedding. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Revelation 19.8. John writes, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now you know that literally the fine linen is not the righteous acts of the saints. If you just go home and get you some nice white bedsheets and turn them into garments and bleach them bright white, that doesn't make you righteous. So this is symbolic language. Isaiah, Zephaniah, Isaiah in Revelation is using symbolic language. And John says that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the, lamb, uh, of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in this parable, this king comes in and he finds a guest not wearing the wedding garment. We must be clothed in the robes of righteousness that only Jesus can provide for us. These are the garments of salvation. This is the fine linen. This is the righteous acts. We are clothed in the righteous acts of Jesus Christ. That work, the only work acceptable to the Father is the work that Jesus performed on the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross uttered these words. It is finished. Now the work. The works that are acceptable to the Father that we do are only the works that we now do in Christ. They're not the works of our flesh. They're not the works of our good intentions. They're not the good deeds. God's not keeping a tally and making sure that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. That's not how it works. The first good work we must perform is relying on Jesus. Trusting in Him. And God gives us the gift of faith to be able to do that. But we have to exercise it. We come clothed in the life of another, in the righteousness of another, in the name of another. By grace, he has clothed us with the garments of another through faith in Jesus Christ. That is what the wedding garment represents. And so the king comes in and he finds this man who's not wearing the wedding garment. Verse 12, so he said to him, friend, how is it? that you've come here without a wedding garment. And he, that is the guest, the man was speechless. Interesting that the king calls him friend. No response means no defense. The man was speechless because the man had no defense. The fact that the guest was speechless indicates he had no defense for his sin. This wasn't an oversight. Now, here's what you need to understand, church. This is a parable of the kingdom. This, this wasn't an oversight on this man's part. He didn't just accidentally wander in and find an empty seat and sit down and didn't know what was going on. That's not the picture Jesus is giving us here. This is a picture of how we are confronted with our sin and rebellion and rejection of God's salvation. It pictures that we have no defense, that we are totally depraved and guilty before him. We remain that way until in his grace he clothes us in his very own righteousness. We are clothed by grace in his righteousness or we are found to be naked, lacking, and ultimately cast out there's another element here. The king calls the man friend. In the same way, Jesus called Judas friend at his betrayal in the garden. This is recorded in Matthew 26 50. When Jesus and his disciples, after they left the upper room celebrating the Passover feast, they go into the garden of Gethsemane. Remember, that's where Jesus prays and and, and he says, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he's there with his disciples. And then Judas brings all of the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And the signal was, the man that I kiss on the cheek, that is the one that you are to re- arrest. Remember, this is at night. It's dark. They don't have solar lighting. They don't have uh, lighted pathways. It's dark. They've got torches. If you ever tried to walk in pitch black with just a torch, you, you know that it doesn't light very far. And so the signal was the one I kiss is the one you are to arrest. And Jesus walks up. Judas walks up to Jesus and with a kiss betrays him. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, friend, Why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him away. It's not that Jesus didn't know why they had come. And it wasn't that Judas was really Jesus' friend, because Judas was not the friend of Jesus. Judas was the son of perdition. He never belonged to Jesus. This is what Jesus prays in his priestly prayer, recorded in John chapter 17. He lost Judas because Judas never belonged. He says in his prayers, Father, I have not lost any that you gave to me, except the son of perdition, who is never mine. The term friend here has something in it of distrust and strong disapproval. It pictures for us that it is not God who has wronged us, but we have wronged him. He is truly a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's what Proverbs eighteen twenty four. says declares, Jesus is that friend to us. We are not that friend to him. Jesus is faithful. We are faithless. This is the picture God gives to us in the book of Hosea when God tells the prophet Hosea, go and marry the harlot, and she's going to be chronically unfaithful to you. It's a picture of my faithfulness to Israel and her chronic unfaithfulness to me. It's a picture of God's grace. That God's grace to us. God's love for us. God's salvation that he gives to us as a gift. Is not conditioned upon our faithfulness. Because we are chronically unfaithful. It's not dependent upon our work. It's dependent upon his work. And his covenant of grace. So the king says to this man friend not because he was truly his friend but it was this man that was he's like the wedding crasher he's not supposed to be there he didn't have the garment on now we can get into all kinds of speculation yeah but was he given the garment and did he not take the garment that's not the point don't take this parable places it's not supposed to go This isn't about trying to figure out who the guest list is at the wedding supper of the lamb. This is a parable of the kingdom. And the point of this parable is if we are not clothed with the righteousness of another, with the garments of another, with the life of another, with the fragrance of another, if we do not come to the father, if we do not come to the king clothed with the garments of another, given to us as a gift of grace because we could not Afford them, we could not earn them, we could not make them ourselves. If we do not come clothed with the garments of another, we will not be acceptable. We will not find entrance into the kingdom. And then it says that the king gives the order. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, at this point, we are prone to ask all sorts of questions that are really not appropriate for this parable. How did the guy sneak past security undetected? How could they be so cruel? He was just poor homeless man who couldn't afford a suit. That's why I don't go to church because you got to dress up. No. Don't, don't use the Bible to make excuses for your rebellion. This is really the truth, church. The world's out there making all kinds of excuses for their rebellion and they're trying to put it back on God. And that's not how it works. And that's not what this parable is about. And so don't go to that place that skeptics and critics want to take you because that's not the point of this parable. This This is a parable about someone who is in open rebellion. All those who reject the king's call to come reject the king. And they do so willfully and in full rebellion. And they are without excuse. And they will be justly bound and taken away and cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Every single human being ever born, except for Jesus Christ, deserves the wrath of God. But God in His grace does not give to all what all deserve. To those He chooses, He gives grace. If we are not careful, listen, if we're not careful, we may find ourselves sympathizing with the man not clothed in the wedding garment. We may think he too poor, too ignorant, or too simple to know any better. We may think the king too hard, too unfair, or too harsh. This is a parable that is conveying willful, open, blatant rebellion on the part of the man, contrasted, listen, with extravagant, abundant, free grace given on part, on the part of the king. This is a contrast of sin and grace. Jesus is giving this parable to the nation of Israel and he's telling them, you have been invited time and time again and you have killed my servants, you have killed my prophets. I am the son of God and you are getting ready to kill me. This isn't the first parable that deals with this. There's the parable of the vineyard owner. And we see the same thing. And that parable goes so far as to say that the owner of the vineyard even sends his son and they killed his son. And at the end of that parable, Jesus says to the Pharisees, And so the kingdom will be taken from you and given to another. says they sought to kill him right then because they knew exactly what he was saying to them. It's very similar right here. This man that's bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness represents all people who trust in their own righteousness and reject God's free gift of grace. There is also the reality that this man represents Judas who would betray Jesus. In the greater context though, this is speaking to more than just a single man. This speaks to a whole class of men who would choose to trust in themselves rather than trust in God. In that way, this man represents all of us in our fallen state apart from God's grace. The king represents the father who gave his son. The son That's getting married, obviously, is Jesus. The servants are the prophets. The angels, all who sent the call out to come to the wedding and be clothed in garments not their own. Those garments represent the righteousness of Christ. That we must be clothed in in order to be saved. In order to be accepted. No wedding garment. No salvation. No robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to me. No salvation. So they bind him hand and foot. They cast him into outer darkness. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in verse 14... Jesus makes this very controversial statement, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called by the gospel of his grace, but few are chosen. Don't let the word few there trip you up. Jesus is not implying that only a tiny remnant will be saved, but rather that not all those called will be chosen. The number of chosen is fewer than the number called. That does not mean the number chosen is, is few, but fewer. God will save a world full of people by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a parable of the kingdom about how we enter the kingdom, how we come to be accepted by the king, as undeserving as we may be. In fact, it is God himself that has made us accepted in the beloved Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 and 6 having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved who made us accepted he made us accepted the call goes out to all. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal Godhead and power, so that they are without excuse. Since the beginning, creation has been calling. All are called, but not all respond. And even some who do respond do not respond in faith And so they do not persevere to the end. The admonition of Scripture that says to those who endure to the end, they shall be saved is not a threat, is not a warning. It's just a simple statement of fact that if you are saved, if you have been chosen by the Father, the Father will not let you fall away. He won't let you. He will keep you. Because salvation is not what you possess, it's who possesses you. And he will not lose you. Those chosen are those who accept the call and put on the garment of Christ's righteousness. Those who reject his call and his garment are called, but they are not chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. How can you know you are chosen? It's very simple, trust in Jesus. And keep trusting in Jesus. What happens when you fail? Trust Jesus. What happens when you fail to trust Jesus? Trust Jesus. (laughs) What, What about when you're unsure? Trust Jesus. Be like the man who says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Anybody ever been there? Come on. Don't lie. You know you have been. And so does God. And you know what? God's grace is bigger than your unbelief. God's grace is bigger than your doubt. Because God didn't save you when you were in faith. God saved you when you were a sinner outside of faith. And he gave you faith to believe. So trust Jesus. Trust in His grace. Trust in the midst of your struggle. Trust in His love. Trust in His mercy. He will never fail and He is always, always, always faithful. His call has gone out since the creation. He calls us to come and to be clothed. He calls us to come to Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Christ has become for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We have no right to glory in and of ourselves. We can only glory in him. He called us, He brought us, He clothed us. To Him belongs all the glory. How do we enter into His kingdom? How are we saved? How do we become righteous and accepted in Him? It is by grace. It is a gift that He gives to us just like the garments given as gifts to those that came to the wedding in Christ we are given a garment to put on. Romans 13:14 says, "Put on the Lord Jesus." Galatians 3:27 says, "For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ." That word in the Greek, that phrase to put on, it's a word that means it's a phrase that means to sink into a garment. It's literally like putting on a garment. Again, no accident that Jesus gives the parable of the wedding and he talks about putting on a wedding garment because we are to put on christ we are to put on the new man ephesians 4 24 we're to put off the old man we're to put on the new man colossians 3 verses 10 through 14 talk about that putting off the old and putting on the new put on the new man it says in verse 12 therefore as the elect of god And above all things, put on love. Every time the Bible says to put on, it's this word that signifies putting on a garment. Be just like me taking this jacket off and putting this jacket on. To put on the wedding garment is to put on Christ. It's to put on Christ. And to put on a new man and a new creation. This is why Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, refers to us as being in the world, but not of the world. You're in the world, church, but you're not of the world. So don't live like the world. Don't think like the world. Don't walk like the world. Don't talk like the world. You're in it, but you're not of it. You are now, if you are born again, you are of Christ You're not of the flesh any longer. You're of the spirit if you belong to Christ. Romans 8 verse 9. You're in the spirit if you belong to Jesus. You're of the spirit if you belong to Jesus. So don't live like you are of the world any longer. Don't do the things the world does. Don't participate in the lusts of the world and the things of the world. But renew your mind to the truth. We're in the world. That means we'll go through things. Listen, you may go through the water. You may go through the fire. Isaiah 43 verse 2 says, We'll go through the water. We'll go through the fire. But we won't be drowned and we won't be burned. John 16.33 says, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 17, 15, Jesus prays, and he prays to the Father, and he says, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but I pray that you keep them from the evil one. That doesn't mean evil things won't ever touch you. That means that the evil one can never snatch you. You cannot lose the salvation that God has given to you in Jesus Christ. The evil one cannot take you away from God. But don't think it does not mean, or let me say it this way, don't ever be mistaken to think that the promises of God mean that we'll never walk through hard times in this life, because we will. But here's the promise of God, whatever hard time, whatever hard thing, whatever valley, whatever darkness, whatever mountaintop, whatever joy, whatever you experience in this life, whatever you walk through in this life, God has promised that he will walk with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Noah wasn't taken out of the flood. He went through the flood. But the waters did not overcome him or his family. We know God is with us for he has given us a garment to mark us as his very own. He has called us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special and treasured people, First Peter chapter 2 verse 9 if you are in Christ he has not only called you but he has chosen you to be his very own when you put on that garment of new life we should all know that we don't deserve it we didn't earn it in any way shape or form It's a free gift of His grace. We receive it by faith. In faith we put it on. In faith we put on the new man. In faith we walk in a new life. In faith we put on Jesus Christ. In putting on the new, there is an implication that there is a putting off of the old. How do we put off the old? We put off the old by being crucified with Christ. Lay down your old life and all that is in the world through lust. Be raised in his life and walk in newness. That newness is given to us in Christ. Even when there doesn't appear to be a way, trust that God has already made a way where there seemed to be no way. He did that in Jesus That's why we do not even, even in the deepest darkness, we do not need to be afraid because Jesus has already gone before us. He has already made a way for us. He is the light lighting our path. This parable pictures that God calls both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, any and all without condition are called to the wedding. The call goes out to all men everywhere. Those who come, come because they are chosen and they are chosen because they come and all by his grace. God will populate a whole world full of people, people of all kinds who have responded to his invitation to come to the wedding of his son. Many are called, but few are chosen. Are you trusting Jesus? There is a call to come to the celebration, to come to the table of the Father, to celebrate the wedding of His Son, to come and to celebrate Christ and His body, broken and living, powerful and eternal Come to Jesus. Trust Him. Be crucified with Him. Be raised with Him. And live eternally in His life. That is the call. What is your response? Do you trust Him, church? In the darkness, do you trust Him? In the midst of tribulation, do you trust Him? In the midst of your uncertainty, do you trust Him? When you can't see your hand in front of your face, do you trust him? Or are you trusting your ability to see, your ability to figure things out, your own ability to control situations and circumstances? Or have you come to the place where you acknowledge and you surrender to this fact that you are not in control, you cannot be, you were never intended to be, but he is in control? Control, And do you trust him? Because he is trustworthy. He will never leave. He will never forsake. He is with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he's not just with us like something we carry in our pocket. But he lives in us. And we live in him. We are, as Paul writes... Of his flesh, of his bone, and of his body. We have become one with him through the miracle of new birth. Amen. So we're going to come to the table. And this table is a table that we come to trusting him. It's not a table that we come to perfect, it's not a table that we come to sinless. In a sense, we are sinless in him, but not because we never sin, not because we never fail. We sin, we fail repeatedly, chronically, all the time in ways we can't even imagine. But yet God invites us to this table. And we come to this table knowing that we fail, but knowing that he has made a way in the midst of our failure, because he succeeded where no one else could. So come, Christians, trust in Jesus. If you've never trusted, trust now and come to Jesus.